The reality is that you and I experience failure in all kinds of ways, both big and small. We might fail to hit the winning home run in a baseball game. We might make a bad business decision or a bad investment decision or make a bad meal. And when we fail, we usually feel bad. And we may fret over our failures and second-guess ourselves, but it's important to understand that failure is not sin, not always. However, sometimes our response to our failures leads us to sin. And then sin itself, of course, is the failure to live up to God's moral and spiritual expectations of us. And yet sometimes the biggest failure that we make is that we don't talk with God when we're failing. And that just makes things worse. I want to share with you a very painful example of failure out of my own life. And it started with relational brokenness. And then because of inappropriate responses, it morphed into sin. At the time, Julie and I had been married for 15 years, and in the fall months of that year, our marriage was in crisis. We had let grievances accumulate over many years, and it all came to a head in that season. And there wasn't unfaithfulness, and we never discussed divorce, but we were failing. There was selfishness, pride, anger, stubbornness, and lots and lots of bitterness. Our communication deteriorated and I actually moved out of our bedroom and for four months I slept in another room on the other side of the house. I, I was failing as a husband. Julie was failing as a wife. And we were failing as children of God. You see, we weren't only experiencing relational failure, we were also experiencing spiritual failure because our behavior toward each other simply was not godly. Accusations, hurtful, derogatory comments, hard hearts that made us unwilling to work toward forgiveness. None of that reflected the heart of Jesus. And so in the midst of our broken relationship with each other, we also had a broken relationship with God because we were not dealing with our sin. Well, it's no surprise then that we stopped praying with each other. And we largely stopped talking with each other except for household essentials. And individually, we didn't pray much either except to complain to God about the other person and ask God to fix them. That's what we often do in moments like that. And there was a heaviness in our hearts and a heaviness in our lives. The only way back from such brokenness is through confession and through forgiveness. And we needed to admit to God our own inadequacy and faults. And then we needed to admit those things to each other. Finally, thankfully, we embarked together on the journey to recover from our failure. 
And it's a journey described by King David in Psalm 32. And it applies not just to marriage, but to all of our relational and spiritual failures. Now, in many ways, this is a hard topic, but I think it's a liberating one because Psalm 32 makes it clear that our God is great and He is far greater than all of our failures. And yet, as we see at the outset, God's desire to bless us and help us overcome our failures often is impeded by our own prideful stubbornness. Let's take a look. A masculine of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose, whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. The ascription here tells us that this is a mass skill, which means it's a teaching psalm. And what it tells us then is that David is going to share this intensely personal story, but he's doing it so that we can learn from his experiences. And I love the fact that David is transparent in so many of his psalms like this because his mistakes can help you and I choose a different path. And what's really interesting here is that before describing the problem, David describes what it means to be blessed. And he wants us to know that we receive God's blessing when God's forgiven us of our sins. Now, depending on your Bible translation, you may find up to three different words in that passage used to describe ungodly behavior. Sin, transgression, iniquity, or some combination of those. And those three words all describe the same problem. Behavior that's harmful to ourselves, harmful to others, and falls short of what God expects of his children. That's sin. And to experience God's blessing, we need to be forgiven for those times when we fall short. But forgiveness isn't always easy because when you and I mess up, we're not always inclined to be honest with God. And we're not honest with God because sometimes we're not even honest with ourselves. That's why David says here in verse 2 that we will be blessed if there's no deceit in our spirits. In other words, receiving forgiveness from God and being blessed by God starts when you and I stop deceiving ourselves and we instead choose to be honest with ourselves about ourselves. Because then we can be honest with God. And here's what's fascinating. David describes the blessing of being forgiven And then in verses 3 and 4, he tells us that he turned his back on that blessing. He knew that he could have peace and joy in the presence of God. He knew that it was his for the asking, and yet he refused to ask. Why would he do that? Because he was stubborn. Now, we don't know what he was being stubborn about. We don't know what the specifics of his sinful behavior were, 
We don't know if he lied or cheated somebody on a business deal or engaged in gossip and slander. But whatever David did, he recognizes that his behavior was ungodly. He was a spiritual failure. In some way, shape, or form, he hurt himself, he hurt others, he disappointed God, but then he compounded his problem through stubbornness. And it's so important to understand that stubbornness toward God always compounds our failures. David knew that he needed to talk with God, but he refused to do it, and he paid a steep price for it. And as he makes clear, we often experience the repercussions of our failures, particularly our sinful failures, in emotional and physical ways. I'll bet you know what that's like. When Julie and I were in our season of marital crisis, oh man, our emotions were ragged. We would flare up with each other at a moment's notice. We did not sleep well. We dragged ourselves through each day. We were experiencing all kinds of emotional and physical symptoms, and they were a direct result of our relational and spiritual failure. David tells us that what he experiences is physical weakness. And if you've ever gone hiking in the desert on a hot summer day, you understand what David means when he describes his strength being sapped by the heat of the sun. Some of us might have even experienced that kind of weakness in the last couple of days with the heat we're going through. But, but I get the picture that David barely has the energy to get out of bed. He says he even experiences physical pains in his bones as a result of his stubborn unwillingness to talk with God. Now that's intense. And what's so amazing that he chooses to endure that pain for a season. He chooses to avoid God. One Bible commentator writes, David's physical symptoms may be exceptional, but his stubbornness is not. <laughs> oh man, is that so painfully true. You and I, we head in the wrong direction and we behave in godly ways and we find ourselves living in the midst of the wreckage of failure and then we stubbornly dig in our heels. I did that. Julie did that. And that's why our season of marital crisis lasted four months instead of four weeks or four days or four minutes. Someone needs to take the first step to turn toward God and turn toward each other and acknowledge, oh, we're wrong. But we hate to take that first step because we're so doggone stubborn, pridefully stubborn. Now, I want to make a key point here. David is talking about the consequences of sinful failure, yet we need to realize that the impact of non-sinful failure also can be profound. A couple of weeks ago, I told you about the time I went through a lengthy season of unemployment. I hadn't done anything wrong, but I had no job, and I felt like I was failing because I was struggling to take care of my family. And I could have been mad at God, for letting that happen, and I could have ignored him, but then I would have been on the same downward spiral that David describes here. 
So whatever the cause, when we are beaten up by failure, we need to let go of our stubbornness so we can receive God's comfort and healing and grace. And when we turn to him, then he will meet us in our moments of need and he will see us through our failures. But he can't do it if we avoid him. David knows that the repercussions of ignoring God are so significant that he wants us to wrestle with the implications. And that's why we find that interesting little Hebrew word, Selah, here in this passage. As we noted last week, that, that term refers to a, a, an instrumental interlude. And so when this psalm was used in worship, people would be singing and then they would see that word Selah and they would stop singing. Then the instruments would play and the congregation would have a moment then to reflect on the words they just sang. Words which remind them that there's a cost to ignoring God. And then after that time of reflection, they would resume singing. And as they continue singing, they move thankfully from the problem to the solution. And the solution to our stubbornness is surrender. Surrender. Let's take a look. I acknowledged my sin to you. Oh my goodness, a simple phrase, but how important and how profound. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. What, what David describes here is so very simple, and yet at times it's so very hard for you and I to do. But after a season of stubbornness, he finally lets go of his pride and he humbly surrenders to God. And, and he stops concealing his sin and instead he confesses his sin. And, and the key to a wholehearted confession is that he uncovers his sin. Which means that he doesn't gloss over any of the details. He comes to a point where he's willing to tell God all of the ways that he's guilty of inappropriate behavior. He's willing to identify every action that did not reflect the best that God had for him. And what happens? As a direct result of David's surrender, demonstrated by his honest confession, God forgives him. Furthermore, God takes away his iniquity, which means that David is set free from the heavy burden of guilt. And that's huge because guilt is a heavy load for us to bear. Now guilt does have an important role to play in our lives because guilt convicts us of our sin. Far too often though, we use guilt to try to motivate other people to avoid bad, bad behavior. We try to impose guilt on people. But you know what? It's not your job or mine to make people feel guilty. According to Scripture, that's the role of the Holy Spirit. His ministry is to convict us of our sin. And the Holy Spirit doesn't need us to get in the way. 
And here's how God wants it to happen. He wants us to be open to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the Holy Spirit will come in and He will convict us of our, of our sin, those areas where we fall short, and then we will feel the burden of our guilt. And then in response, we don't turn away from God, but we come to Him and we confess and repent. We uncover our sin and we lay it all out and then God forgives us. And when He forgives us, it is complete because He sets us free from our guilt. And then that heavy burden is gone. For Julie and I, it took us a while to reach that point of freedom because we had allowed so much debris to pile up in our marriage. There was a lot we had to say to God and had to say to each other in order to experience spiritual and relational forgiveness. Oh, but once we both relented, once we both gave up our stubbornness, once we both put our pride to the side, once we both chose the path of surrender, then we both pursued the goal of forgiveness relentlessly. Not just one of us, both of us. I know some of you never reached that point of forgiveness in your own marriages and my heart breaks for you, and I believe God's does as well. But I'm so thankful that as Julie and I pursued that goal of forgiveness together, then by God's grace, we arrived at that point together, and forgiveness was established, and we were able to move beyond it and leave those days behind us. And now many years later, we can talk about that season of life openly and honestly without rehashing problems or pointing fingers because we have been forgiven by God and we have forgiven each other completely. And here's what's really amazing and wonderful. Today, we can't even remember what it was that we were fighting about. Now, and it's not because of early senility. It's because we have been set free from the guilt of our failure. It is gone. And that is an amazing, blessed gift from our great God. Now once again, I believe that what David is writing here applies equally well to non-sinful failures. If we're emotionally and relationally suffering and have done nothing wrong, we still need to uncover everything that's going on in our mind, in our heart, and our soul. Surrendering to God requires complete honesty with God. And when you and I refuse to hold anything back, that's when the Holy Spirit can rush in to lift us up and restore us and renew us. Now, if this psalm was describing the experience of many modern-day Christians, I think it would probably end right here at verse 5. Because often that's where we stop the process. We confess our sinful behavior. We believe that God forgives us, and then we just go merrily on our way. But, you know, sometimes that can be a problem because it means we're being way too cavalier about our sins and about the incredible forgiveness we've received. You and I cannot take God's forgiveness for granted. And that's what David teaches us in the rest of this psalm. 
when we have been forgiven and renewed, when we've been lifted up from failure, then we should want to respond by celebrating, by celebrating what our great God has done for us. Let's look at the next couple of verses. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. You see, David knows that God didn't need to forgive him for his failures. Forgiveness was a gift. So David's now celebrating his freedom. And he's so full of joy that he invites other believers to join him in celebrating the greatness of this God who rescues us from ourselves and who protects us when we rely on him. And because of this great aspect of this God who rescues us, David urges people to reach out to God while he may be found. Now that's, that's an interesting phrase. We need to understand it clearly. David does not mean that God goes into hiding or that he places himself beyond our reach. What David means is that we need to relent of our stubbornness before we harden our hearts so much that we reach a point where we don't care about God at all. Because then we won't want to find God. Some people, sadly, reach that tragic point. And the Bible tells us that God then gives them over to their own lusts and desires. And that is not a good place to be. Instead, what we need to do is take refuge in our great God. And then we're protected by him. We're protected from the mighty waters, which is a metaphor uh, that the Jewish people used for the chaos and confusion and disorder of the world. So David's celebrating the greatness of this God who forgives and who rescues and who restores and who protects his children in the shelter of his arms. David's celebrating. And I find myself wondering, do we, do we celebrate like this? I have this feeling that, that we don't, at least not very often. And I believe it's because we're not always fully honest with ourselves about the consequences of our behavior. And if we don't uncover our sins, if we don't confess the burden of our failures, then then there's no overwhelming sense of relief and joy when we're set free and, and we're grateful, but we don't feel this need to celebrate. And let me tell you, it is so good to celebrate the greatness of our God and the way He restores us. And to never take that for granted. And I'm happy to say that when God restored our marriage. Julie and I did not take it for granted. Oh, we celebrated. And we thanked God and each other profusely, and we rededicated ourselves to praying with each other and for, for each other so that our marriage would continue to remain within the protective arms of our God. And over all the years since, we continue to celebrate the joy of our life together through all of the ups and downs. And yes, of course, there still are ups and downs because that's life. But we refuse to 
ever again let our marriage head down the path of failure. And one way to protect the great blessing God has given us is to celebrate our life together. To celebrate the restoration God gave us. And so whatever our failures, when we've been rescued by God, our first response always should be to celebrate. And then as David shows us next, there's another helpful and very powerful response. We can take those experiences and share them with others. And the reason to do that is to help them avoid the mistakes we've made. Let's take a look at the final verses of this psalm. David says, I'll instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. I love the way this ends on a note of celebration, but, but God has demonstrated his faithfulness to David. He's demonstrated his greatness over David's failures, and David wants to teach other believers so they can avoid the kind of spiritual failure that he endured. And we need to understand when he says, oh, I'm going to teach you, he's not talking down to people. He's saying, oh, I don't want you to do what I did. And he reminds people here that the root of the problem is prideful stubbornness, which he drives home with the image of the horse and the mule. Anybody ever been on a bucking horse who refuses to be reined in? I'm not, but I've seen it, and it doesn't look like a fun time to be in the saddle. And then there's few animals more stubborn than a mule who's made up his mind to ignore his master. Those are great images of stubbornness. And let's be honest, sometimes you and I can be just that stubborn. And when we, when we behave like that, when we choose our own path instead of relying on God, then we're compounding the problems we've experienced because of our failures. And, and we know that a stubborn animal can eventually be subdued by force through a bit and a bridle, but that's not how the Heavenly Father wants to treat His children. He wants us to willingly yield to Him out of love and gratitude. And so when we mess up, we should do what David did as modeled earlier in this psalm. We simply surrender. We surrender to God. We admit our mistakes. We tell the Father about the hurts of our failures. And then we can receive and celebrate His forgiveness and our restoration and our renewal. And that's how we stay close to God and experience His steadfast love. Steadfast love. That's the Hebrew word hesed we talked about two weeks ago. That incredible love which only comes from God. This Hesed love which is strong and gracious and merciful and kind and loyal and long-suffering. That's the love of God that surrounds us and embraces us and envelops us when we turn and step into the arms of the Heavenly Father. And that steadfast love, oh, is that a reason to celebrate? 
Oh, is that a reason to share our experiences so others can soak in the incredible restorative love of God? You can learn from my failures. I can learn from yours. We can help each other avoid some of the pitfalls and problems and mistakes of life. And together we can celebrate the greatness of our God, this God who's greater than our failures and who restores us and renew us and who keeps on loving us. Julie and I take this advice from King David very seriously. Over the years, we've spoken at a variety of marriage conferences and retreats, and, and quite often at some point, we bring up what we call the great crisis of year 15 of our marriage. We talk openly with other couples about that season of incredible emotional and relational and spiritual failure. And we talk about the ways that our great God rescued us and forgave us and put our marriage back together. You see, we have a responsibility to share our experience, just as David shares his, so we can help others avoid the profound mistakes that we made. And all of us at times experience failure. Yet because of pride, whether our failures are caused by sin or not, we sometimes like to hide our failures from God and others. We don't want to share about them because we don't want to look bad. And particularly in the church, at times this is an issue. It can be an issue for any of us. It can particularly be an issue for church leaders. I know an elder at another church who had an adult son fall into a life of alcoholism. I know a ministry leader at another church whose husband just ran off and left her. I know a pastor whose adult unmarried daughter got pregnant. All of those things were incredibly, uh, incredibly painful. And all of those leaders felt like failures but I'm not sure they did anything wrong. Yet they felt like they had to hide those things from their churches. Partly out of the fear of being judged, which sadly is a valid fear, but the main reason they wanted to hide was pride. As leaders, they wanted to portray a life where they had it all together a life that was problem-free, and they did not want to look bad in front of other Christians. And it's not just leaders. Anyone can feel the same way. But what it meant was the church couldn't come alongside them and walk with them through that time of heartache. By not sharing, they weren't able to learn from others' experiences. That's why David reminds us in this psalm that hiding our failures brings its own pain. Honesty with God and honesty with others is what brings restoration and renewal. And in particular, honesty with God is what brings protection and comfort and joy and forgiveness. And it brings the release 
of guilt. And when we are set free from the guilt of our failures, oh, then, then we can celebrate the goodness of God. And when we've allowed ourselves to be set free, then there's the freedom to share our stories with others so they can be encouraged and learn from our mistakes. And together we can help each other move forward in this wonderful and amazing journey called the life of faith. All of it, all of this is a marvelous gift from our great God. May we never forget that our God is great and he is greater than any or all of our failures. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your steadfast love for us is amazing. Thank you that you are a long-suffering and patient Father. And thank you that you put up with us during, during those times when we're stubborn. And thank you for choosing to rescue us when we turn to you. And when we do turn to you, may we, like David, not cover up our sin, but uncover it all and be honest with you. And as you forgive us, as you restore us, as you renew us, oh, may we revel in that. May we celebrate that. May we share the joy of that with others. And may we be willing to help each other learn from our failures so they can celebrate your goodness. Thank you, Father, for giving us the privilege of walking through life together, through success and failure, and sustaining us always through your steadfast love. In Jesus' name, amen.